Well, good morning. Welcome to the Christian Church of Estes Park. We're disciples of Jesus that build disciples of Jesus. My name is Aaron Lee Pastor, and I'm thrilled that you're here with me today as we continue our series through the book of Acts, which has been a lot of fun. And I can't believe that we're already here at chapter 23. Uh, you know, um, this week, it's amazing as we've gone through each of these weeks, actually, how our God, being sovereign as He is, and His foreknowledge being what it is, how each week the chapter seems to match what's happening in the world. It's so applicable. And as I was reviewing my notes and everything over this message, uh, you know, coming back to how uh, just amazing it is that uh, the Word of God is so helpful and timely and some good things about how important our words are today. You know, uh, we live in a, a, a little bit of a polarized culture, I don't know if you've noticed, uh, maybe it's just me, but uh, it seems to be that as our culture continues to uh, go down this, this uh, path of, of uh, uh, separation, it seems like um, friends that used to be friends are now becoming enemies and uh, things like that. In fact, I even had this week a, a person that I, I care about very deeply, uh, I've had a good long relationship with them, actually called me a Nazi which is, was pretty hard for me to take because um, that's a pretty awful thing to call somebody, and I'm not, you know, and so that wasn't, uh, but it let me know that uh, as our, uh, we've just have been in a, a portion of our society, the way that our culture has gone has been uh, really, really rough, and I don't like the direction that it's heading. It seems more and more hatred, more and more polarization, things like this. This is not the way of Christ, and so I think oftentimes as, as Christians, we wonder how do we respond? In times like this, would you happen to know that today's text, as we get into the 23rd chapter, really talks about that? And one of the first ways that we get to respond, and it's very important how we respond, is, is even with our words. And so uh, I'm excited to share that with you. Of course, before we do, our memory verse, which we have for this series, we've been uh, memorizing it all the way through, so uh, is uh, from the chapter tw- uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 24. It's the words of the Apostle Paul that uh, he spoke to the Ephesian elders near the end of his ministry. And uh, we've been practicing these uh, all the way through so far. Hopefully, for those of you who've been here every week, this is starting to become more and more natural. If you're first time with us, we welcome you. Uh, it, trust me, it's not scary. What we're going to do is we're just going to say these together a few times and uh, begin setting them to our heart. And then after that, I'll explain kind of how we begin to build on that and the work that God does as we memorize his word. So here we go. Say it along with me. Three, two, one. I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace, Acts 20, 24. Now, you've got just a reminder of this. Um, I have been reminding myself of this basically every day since we've started and uh, as the Lord provides me opportunity to become offended, which is more often than I would like to say, I've been a chance to remind myself of this is how I've known that my life still isn't worth nothing to me. As I get a, uh, when somebody offends me, my life seems very valuable to me at that particular moment. And, uh, and just this week, like I said, as I was having a conversation with a, with a person that I considered a friend, um, when they said something really rough, I mean, when you be called a name and a, a horrible thing, um, it would be natural for me to respond not with the good news of God's grace, but with the righteous indignation and the fury of the Lord. That's kind of where, you know, the, the, uh, the good news of, of, you know, why I'm right. That's, that's kind of how I would normally respond. I don't know if you're like that, but that's how my normal MO had, had been. 
And uh, I've just seen as I've been applying this passage throughout time, through little things like traffic and bigger things with the arguments and, and disagreements with people that, uh, and wounds uh, from those that we love, it's amazing how God's Word began to work on me. So the Word of God, is, it says it's like a, a sword, right? It's a sword of the Spirit, but it's also like a scalpel. It's not just like God goes into your spirit and just starts hacking away. It says that the Word of God is sharper than any type of sword. It's able to divide even soul from spirit. And if you can figure that out, then you're lying because that's like such a small divide that none of us have a real... That's how, how tight it is in there, right? God's Word is very precise. And it's been doing work in my heart and my spirit, that selfishness that wants to proclaim me. And so I found that this week, as I had that opportunity for offense, as somebody came and attacked me at a very deep level... Uh, Instead of re, uh, reacting with anger, which is what my normal MO would have been, it was amazing. I didn't even have to think. Like In the moment, there was this testifying to the good news of God's grace. And it started with me being able to offer grace. And instead of reacting and, and fighting the fight, being like, whoa, you know what? Let's uh, deeply sad that you would say that, but be able to extend grace and bring back the, situa- the conversation back to a point of truth. We talk about today, and actually the end of our conversation was not one of hostility, but one of friendship, which is amazing. I say the power of God's word is, is, is there, because normally I wouldn't have had it in me to do that. That's what I'm saying, is he's changing me. And I hope that over these last month and a half, as we've been going into God's word, as you've been applying, that you can see God begin working and changing in you. And if you haven't been memorizing and meditating on God's word, let me encourage you and invite you to do that. It is not a game. It actually, God's word works. It does surgery in our spirits, and it changes us. And so if you would like to do that, maybe you started on your connection car, there is, uh, there is a, a, a little tear-off portion on that, which is a little, like a little business card size because you do business with God, and it's the memory verse. I encourage you, tear that off. Take it with you. That's why we put it there. Uh, take it with you wherever you go. And just what's like I've been doing, every time I have opportunity, I start in the morning, oftentimes I memorize this or as I'm walking, driving to church, but then also I found that every time that I find myself being offended, there's a chance for me to then quote and to remind myself of this. And it recenters, it resets me back on what matters, the good news of God, the good news of God's grace. And how that's changed. It's powerful stuff. All right. So now we have that. Let's get into the rest of God's word. We have uh, Acts 23. It's going to be on page 777 if you have one of our Bibles. If you forgot your Bible day, don't worry about it. We've got plenty, so you can use one of those. They're in this, uh, near the sound booth over there. And uh, if you need a Bible, uh, then just keep it. It'll be our gift to you. So uh, last week, as in chapter uh, 22, um, we had one of our very own uh, disciples growing up in the church. Caleb did a great job, a phenomenal job, bringing the word to for us. And he talked about how we were part of God's story, this epic story that God has, and ours is still being written, but it's, we're part of something bigger, and, and he encouraged us in that. And he did that by talking about how Paul, when he was being attacked by a mob, uh, he's over there in Jerusalem. He's, uh, he went to go uh, to, to honor the, um, the law and to fulfill some things, to be able to show the, the Jewish Christians there that, that uh, he wasn't a threat or anything like that. He hadn't uh, you know, abdicated faith or anything like this, that he was attacked for doing that very same thing, and the mob was trying to kill him right there in the temple, and he was saved. And So he goes up, and he addresses the crowd, and he gives them his testimony, right? He's his story, how he's seen Christ and, and what God was doing, and 
um, and part of that story. Well, then, of course, they didn't receive it well. Sometimes when we share our story, we, we tell people truth. It's not always received in, in a good way, and that didn't happen with Paul. The, the crowd got angry, and we're going to kill him, so the uh, satyriad arrests him, brings him to the safety of prison, and uh, was going to beat him up, and then found out he was a Roman citizen, so now he's got rights that have to be protected, and so the first thing they wanted to do as this Roman citizen is the, uh, the Roman officials brought together the Sanhedrin the leading officials of the Jewish religion to discuss at, uh, what Paul's situation was and to try him there to see, did he violate the law? Did he bring a Gentile into their Jewish temple? That uh, was the, the charge. So that's where we pick up the story today. We're going to start the first five verses in chapter uh, 23. And uh, it says, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin. And he said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. And at this, the high priest Ananias ordered that those standing near Paul strike him in the mouth. Then Paul said, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? And Paul replied, Brothers, I didn't realize that it was the high priest, for it's written, do not speak evil about uh, the rulers of your people. So which is an interesting way to start your trial. Okay, the judge is there, and you say, I'm innocent, and he says, punch him! And then you insult the judge. Um, this is an interesting way that we have. Like the, Paul stands in there, and he says, start out, I have had good conscience, I'm innocent. Everything I have done so far has not violated my faith, which is pretty significant because Paul had done some very objectively evil things, which Paul even admits to. He uh, persecuted Christians to the point of death, right? He, uh, Stephen, the first martyr, he was there saying, yeah, kill him, right? All of those things. Paul had done and was part of some pretty bad things, things that he later, he says, I'm not proud of, but he acted with good conscience, which lets us know that oftentimes people, we can act with good conscience even when we do evil things because our consciences are broken. It's not that we're immoral, it's that we're wrongly moral, and that's what where Paul was, right? He believed the wrong things were right and the right things were wrong earlier on, but when he found truth, he was able to correct. That was his argument. And then he also said the original charge that he was there, did he bring a Gentile into the, the t- Holy of Holies or to the, the temple area, not even the Holy of Holies, just the, the area? No, he didn't. I've acted with good conscience. So to begin with, it does help if you could start with a clean conscience, right? If you've been living in such a way that you've been violating your conscience and doing things, it's difficult to have a good hearing in this world. And uh, it's so... Uh, Paul starts there. Now, Ananias responds with corruption. Why? Because Ananias was a corrupt man. Ananias was the high priest, right? But the, the high priesthood was supposed to be the most uh, revered, uh, the, a very holy position, right? God has very uh, specific things, who could be the high priest in the word, how he's chosen, all that kind of stuff. He's responsible to bring atonement for God's people, all those types of things. It was supposed to be a position that's beyond corruption, and yet it was completely corrupt, in this particular time in history, now we're getting to the very end of the, of the Israelite the, the age, right, before they, they went to war with Rome. There's a lot of nationalism, things like this, but there was a lot of corruption in the system. And so what we had is you have the, uh, the, the, the high priesthood was basically was being uh, auctioned off. There's a guy um, named uh, Herod. And uh, Herod Agrippa II, his father Herod Agrippa I was the guy who got eaten by worms over there in Caesarea, right? He was a real great uh, winner. Uh, when that happened, Herod Agrippa II was up in Rome learning how to spend money. In fact, he got all kinds of trouble by overspending his credit. And so he had to, to leave uh, Rome 
to get away from his creditors. This was his character. And he was a young man. He was like 17, and he found a couple different jobs of doing official work there. And so at the time of, uh, um, that this happened, Herod Agrippa was... Uh, he wasn't really king of the people anymore. Like the Israelites didn't have their own leader. The Romans were really ruling at this point. Um, he had done a couple things to try to keep the temple worship fairly pure so the people liked him. But uh, some things that he also did were like his dad. He was really corrupt. He made money by selling the priesthood. Uh, the, the Roman government said, you can't be king, but we're going to make you the chief of the temple. So he was a Roman official over this temple. And so anything that happened, you got to point the high priest, or the high priest had to, had to approve things through him and all this kind of stuff. It's all he did. He's like, all right, who wants to be high priest? Who's got the most money? And you have this guy, uh, Ananias, who says, I've got a lot of money, and gives it to this corrupt way and buys his way into office. And because he was a man of not great character, this man of great prestige, as far as his position was really important, he abused it, like straight up abused it. He would go, he had his thugs would, would go every single harvest and they would go out to the farmers and they would go to where they had their th- threshing things and they would demand the tithe that was supposed to go to the local synagogue be paid to the high priest. Basically, he was robbing from the local synagogues. And it was well known that he did this. He, he, had his, he was like mafia, right? He was the top guy. That's why he's the kind of guy who punches people in the face or orders it when they say things he doesn't like. He didn't care about justice. He's a horrible, awful person that would stand before God and is going to have to answer for what he had done, right? He was uh, robbing from the priesthood. And these other priests that they got their income taken away from them, they still needed to eat and things like this. So then the people that were there who already gave their tithe, oftentimes just out of the goodness of their hearts to society, would give these, these pastors a, a, a basically a survival wage. And what he was doing when he was abusing the word of God and the, and the priesthood for selfish gain. He was a despicable human being by any stretch of the imagination. That's who this man was. And so Paul says he's standing before this horribly corrupt judge and this circus of a court, right? The, the Sanhedrin was not set up by the people supposed to be the wise elders of the people. Half of them were there because of their political appointments. They had no business being there. They didn't care about justice. He's standing there before this horribly corrupt group of people. And he's trying to stand there and say, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not guilty. And the first thing they do is they punch him. And so Paul responds like most of us. And I love his response to him. He says, you whitewashed wall. Dare you hit me. God's going to strike you. And you know what God did? Eight years later at the Roman Jewish Wars, when they started, the, the, uh, there was this group of assassins, Jewish assassins, called the Sicarii. They were named that because they had these little knives, these curved knives that were by the same name. And they would go through the temple and they would see people that they, mostly uh, Sadducees, they'd see people that had uh, talked to Gentiles or the Romans. And so just because they talked to them, they, they would be like, well, you're, uh, you're a traitor. And they would go and they'd stab them. They'd kill them right in the middle of the public. These were these type of assassins. That's how they worked. Well, when the Roman-Jewish wars began... Uh, the, one of the first targets was this guy named Ananias. The, these, these assassins who wanted the temple to go back to the, the Jewish rule, they found Ananias hiding in his own sewer. They drug him out of his sewer and they stabbed him to death publicly and made a mockery of him and his death. I mean, so he, he got his, his comeuppance, right? Corrupt people often are, are killed with corruption. That's just the, you can't run away from forever. So that did happen. But Paul, he says, listen, you are a whitewashed wall. His, his insult 
which I mean, for most of us today, we would say that's kind of mild, right? You get, but it was pretty, it was a big slam, it was a burn, right? Because we have walls, but underneath that's two by fours and they look really clean and nice. In Jerusalem, their walls, they'd have really beautiful walls that would carve stones and things like, those are the ones that lasted, right? And they're beautiful. But then, because those are expensive, uh, they put in cheap walls sometimes in, in areas that didn't need to, it's important, it's, you know, and they would do is they would just fill it in with all the rubble right? It was just whatever pieces that they could throw in there, the old garbage and all this stuff, and they just kind of put mud and stuff between it, and then it would look lousy, right? And really, it's not the strongest wall, but uh, it didn't need to be, just need to look nice. And so after they, they fill in the wall with all that nasty stuff, then they would, they would put this uh, uh, veneer of plaster on the outside of it, and they, would wa- and they would paint it white, so it would look the same as those beautiful, nice walls, and Paul is basically saying to this guy, you look nice, but inside is just corruption and weakness, and it's not going to stand, and we all know what's inside of you. That's what he was calling out, and uh, that's pretty rough. And uh, the fact that he didn't know the man was a high priest is, is a point of concern. How is it that Paul is sitting in this trial and didn't know that the guy he just insulted was the high priest? A couple options, we don't know. It could be that uh, the, high, the Sanhedrin was called very quickly for a very quick trial, which means that did they have a chance to review all of the stuff? Usually when a quick trial is, is formed, it's because you're having mob justice. And so the, the high priest didn't have time to put on all his garb and all that kind of stuff. And so they all kind of looked the same. He was just wearing his street clothes. And so Paul didn't know. The second option is maybe uh, Paul's because he had bad eyesight. We know he had bad eyesight. So maybe Paul was just kind of looking and he saw this guy that was dressed in his white priestly stuff, and he's like, I don't know who this guy is, but he's asked me punched in the mouth, right? Maybe that's it. It could be that Paul was just being sarcastic and being like, there was no way I could have known you were the high priest because you don't have the character of the high priest. <laughs> it could have been that. <laughs> we don't know. Uh, but it's interesting. He doesn't know he's a high priest, so what does Paul do when he's called out? He says, no, this is the high priest, even though this man's horribly corrupt. He says, whoa, I'm sorry. I got it wrong. Because the word of God says I'm not to speak evil about my, the leader of my people. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't it cool the word of God doesn't uh, whitewash our heroes of faith? That even Paul, and I think we could understand, we put ourselves in Paul's shoes, you'd want to strike back. But Paul's like, whoa, I was wrong. As soon as he was called out, he doesn't give an argument for it. He doesn't say, well, he's not acting like the high priest. He's like, whoa, I was wrong. The word of God says this, and I did something different. I was wrong. That's how he begins. Well, after that, uh, Paul then begins to give his defense. Verse 6, it says, Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others were Pharisees, he called out to the Sanhe- uh, in the Sanhedrin, Brothers, I am a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection from the dead. And when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Did the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection from the dead and there's neither angels nor demons? Um, The Pharisees believe in all of these things. There was a great uproar and some of the teachers of the law who were the Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man. Then uh, they said, what if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? And the dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them and he ordered the troops to go down and to take him away from them by force and bring him back to the barracks. So this is an interesting uh, thing. Paul basically gets a very short defense. 
And his defense is, is really, he's, he, it's his identity, and he goes to the heart of why he's, he's being arrested. Now, to understand this, you have to understand the political climate. Much like today, there was a lot of division, right? You had the uh, Sadducees, who were the liberal elites, right? They believed, and when I say liberal, theologically liberal. They believed that the Bible was not the inspired word of God. They believed that it was just good, good text, it was good history and things like that, but it wasn't to be taken like it says. I mean, no good person would believe crazy things like people have spirits and people can raise again after they die and stuff like that, they, right? And so they were the kinds that said, you know what, we're going to moralize the Bible and we're going to adjust it according to our culture, right? So that's how they got away with doing kinds of crazy things like selling the high priesthood. They're like, well, when God said the high priest is supposed to be this, he was just talking about it's kind of an important thing. That's what, they were the liberal elites, and they were the very, very wealthy ones. They're the ones that they got along with the Romans really well, all that kind of stuff. On the other side of the aisle, you had the Pharisees, who were the populists, who were the conservatives. They believed that the Bible was the inspired word of God. They were in amongst the people like that. They were just, and so... Uh, kind of the the working man's portion of that. And so the Pharisees would look at the Sadducees and said, oh, you are out of touch, you horrible people. You know, you're trying to browbeat us with all of your, you know, ways of trying to skirt around the word. And the Sadducees would look down on the Pharisees and say, oh, you stupid, uneducated common folk. You believe this is really the word of God, right? And the Pharisees were the type that they believed it was so much the word of God. They were like, we want to make sure we never violate this because we remember way back in history when we violated it, God sent us away into captivity. And so we would never violate the word of God. We've got these rules and laws. We're going to make laws around those laws so we never even get close to the law. And once they had those, they said, let's make laws around those laws. They got laws that keep them from, from violating laws that would keep them from violating the law. That's, that's a lot. Right? They're committed, folks. So you have these two. One saying, ah, law doesn't matter. The other one says, it's so holy, we don't even get close to touching it. We don't talk about it. Right? You have polarization. You think that they had some choice words for each other. Both sides thought that the other one were just despicable, horrible people. And so this was this place where Paul was standing within. And Paul goes and makes his defense. And his defense was this. I am a Pharisee, and my parents were Pharisees. And the reason he does that is not to divide his audience, but because he understands where his audience is. It's interesting. The first thing, he needs to set up what he's going to, his defense truly is. They need to understand. Paul is saying, listen, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. I believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. I believe the prophets were telling real things. I believe the Messiah was going to come just like the prophets said he would. And I testified that that's what happened. Paul is saying, I am a person that's committed to this. I'm not a contradiction to the Word of God. I believe in it deeply. And I think it's important for us to recognize Paul didn't say, I was a Pharisee, but I am a Pharisee. That Paul understood something that we all do, that the Christian faith must, in order to be consistent, to be right, to be what it claims to be, it has to be the natural and intended continuation of the faith that started with Adam. And grew through, we have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. The same faith. Not something new. And Paul didn't say how to walk away from the, the history. I still believe the word of God. I still believe the prophets. I still believe God was doing his claim. Paul says, I identify with this. And because he identifies with one who believes in the word of God, the next statement, his defense, is very simple and it makes sense. I'm on trial because of my belief in the resurrection of the dead. Now it makes sense. 
See, Paul was being dragged before there on a false and unfounded charges that he brought Gentiles into the temple. And Paul basically blows those out of saying, I'm a Pharisee. Never do such a crazy thing like that. But the second point that Paul makes is the real reason he's there. Why were those false charges there? Because Paul had the audacity to believe that God kept his word. The Messiah came. He fulfilled all of the prophecies, hundreds of them. He lived. God took on flesh and walked amongst us and died a real death in that very city and raised again and proved it. And so doing, giving us the promise of eternal life. Paul said, this is really why I'm on trial. This is why I'm standing here today. So Paul doesn't go with the sham. He tells the truth. He says, this is why I'm here. And do you think that the people received that? No, of course not. I mean, going in and saying, I believe in the resurrection of the dead, would be like walking into Congress today and saying, I believe that we should build walls or something like that. You think that's going to cause an argument? Yeah. I mean, he, he lied himself and he said, this is the truth. And he didn't do it to cause an argument. He spoke the truth so they could understand why he's there. And that corrupt governmental agency that was there acted corruptly. Did they ask Paul? Paul, tell us about why you believe in the resurrection of the dead. Paul, we really are here. Did you bring somebody into the temple? Which is why you're really here. Did you bring a Gentile? They didn't talk about that at all. You had even the people that were on pros Paul's side. They weren't, didn't care about the truth with Paul. It just said they argued vigorously. This man is innocent. They didn't cross-examine him. They didn't even ask the question. They were just, they don't care about the side. They just wanted to be against the other side. No one cared about justice. That's where Paul was. And it degenerated. Both sides fighting against each other. Nothing's happening. And so it came to a point that the, the outside, the Romans, are looking in at this. And what a horrible testimony it is to faith. These Gentile Romans looking in at how badly these people who carried the name of God were acting. And says, we need to save this Roman citizen from this, this circus. And he goes in And the Roman government saves the gospel. Think about that from being torn apart. And they rescue Paul and bring him back to the safety of prison again. It's kind of funny. Now, after Paul is uh, taken back out to the prison, you would think, okay, um, this is probably going to blow over, you would think, right? Because Paul was accused of a crime, bringing a Gentile into the temple. No one brought up any charges with that. There was no evidence, right? And even the Sanhedrin, who was called in to educate that, to say, Does this, did this happen? They, they couldn't make a decision. Hung jury, right? You have half of them, the Pharisees, are like, nope, he clearly couldn't have. And so you think, oh, it ends there. But it doesn't, because hatred rarely ends at the end of a conflict, right? And so verse 11, we, we find... That says, the following night, the Lord stood... Oh, sorry, that's the wrong chapter. Because that would be... Uh, that would be bad. That's the right chapter. I'm sorry. I had the wrong place. I said, <laughs> the, uh, the Pharisees... Uh, there was a great uproar, and some of them, the teachers of law, they said they'd take him. And then it says, um, Paul be torn in pieces. And that following night, the Lord Jesus uh, stood near Paul and says, Take courage, as you testify me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify me about me in Rome. And the next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they killed Paul. Now, two things. One, Jesus was there. Isn't that crazy? Jesus was there. And Jesus has a purpose in this. 
He says, you were just in a crazy court. You saw the corruption and all those things, but don't worry about it. I've got a plan in this. I think that's really important. Later on, you'll find how important this promise was. Sometimes God reveals himself to us, and we've got to cling to that. So Paul found peace in the midst of this. But then the second part is, even though Paul was standing with Jesus, and Jesus was standing with, God, uh, with, with Paul and through this, there was a lot of people, 40 guys in fact, who were willing to break and violate the very commandments of God in order to honor the commandments of God. Isn't that crazy? That we're going to kill Paul. We're going we're to subvert justice, right? We, we've, 40 of us have gotten together. We're going to murder this man who has not been found guilty because we say he's guilty, and that's enough. And so we're going to take justice into our hands, and we're going to trick the Romans, and we're going we're gonna to abuse the corruption that's in the Sanhedrin, and we're going to go, we're going to murder this man in the name of honoring God. Again, humans are very moral beings. We're just wrongly moral. These guys believed very deeply. They took a deep oath. In fact, it says there, the oath they took, it says they made themselves a curse. They said, to the, they said, God, we want you to curse us until we do this. And unless we don't do this, then we want to be totally cursed by you. Forty guys say we're not going to eat or drink until we murder Paul. And so they plan it out. We want you to carry Paul through these windy streets, and we're going to ambush him. And oh, by the way, yeah, we're going to kill some innocent Roman soldiers, but there's no innocent Roman soldiers. That's what they would say. And we're going to murder Paul. And you're going to be part of it. The Sanhedrin, the, the, the Sadducees who are part of this, wanted to kill Paul. That's what they're going to do. But God was good. He was with Paul. And you know what? God is so cool. He's omnipotent, right? He's got all this power, right? And, uh, but he's also omniscient. It means he knows everything. It means everywhere he is, and he's omnipresent, he's all places, he knows what's going on in all places, which is fascinating about God. So God was staying there with Paul saying, hey, I've got you. But he was also in that very room when this conspiracy came about and he wasn't taken aback. And God had already had it checked because Paul had a, uh, somebody there. God had, a, had an agent right there. It said in verse 16, but when uh, the son of Paul's sister heard of the plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. You know how God works? It just happens that Paul's nephew happens to be just right around when these guys are coming up with their, their devious scheme and he finds out about it. Like normally like a scheme like that, you think you try to keep it away from the family of the person you're going to murder, you'd think. But Paul's nephew hears about it and he's like, this is wrong. So he goes, he tells Paul. Paul says, hey, go tell the centurion. Centurion says, all right, we're going to send you to, uh, to Caesarea. We're going to get you out of Jerusalem that very night. And how he does this is... Uh, he sends basically half of his forces in Jerusalem. He, he sends all of these chariots, or all these horsemen. He sends all these soldiers. And they walk a 40-mile hike that night, right? They get down to, the, to uh, Patrius, and then, they, uh, then the, just the guys that are on the mounted cavalry take uh, Paul the rest of the way. But uh, he sends half of his force to protect them. Think how amazing. The Roman government sends half of the Jerusalem force to protect the gospel. Was, was Jesus with them? Yeah. Yeah, that is pretty awesome. And so he sends them down. Uh, the, the centurion writes a letter to Felix, who's the governor down there. And uh, verse 27, he says, uh, Greetings, this man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. Um, but I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he was a Roman citizen, which isn't entirely the truth. He found he's a citizen after he rescued him, but you know how people are. We write things in our best interest. Then he says, 
I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him into the Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but uh, there were no charges about him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot carried out against this man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present himself, their case to you. And so Paul, sends, uh, Paul is sent down to Caesarea to stand before Felix, and, uh, and he arrives there. And Felix, the first thing, the question, he says, are you in my jurisdiction? What city, are you, what region are you from? And uh, Paul tells him, and he finds out, well, this is in his jurisdiction, and so Felix has to hear the case, right? Because Paul is a Roman citizen. How God was even in charge of that. How cool is this? Now, next week we see how Paul defends, like how he goes through this case with, with Felix. But before we do, let's talk about Felix, where he goes to. Felix was not an upstanding guy. Like Paul goes from the Sanhedrin, which were corrupt, and he goes to Felix. Felix was a guy, he was born a slave. And last week, uh, you got to hear about the different layers of the, of the Roman status. So, you know, uh, and so Felix started out as the lowest of the low. He was a slave, and so was his brother. His brother happened to be a slave that, was, that worked for one of the emperors and was really uh, did a good job there. And so his brother got to become a freedman, and later Felix as well. And now as freedmen, now they had really high status. And so they were given political appointments over things. But just because he was given a, from a slave and was given this great political appointment didn't mean he all of a sudden was like, hey, I'm going to fight for the little guy. He was all about himself, so much so that the historian Tacitus writes about him. He says that he had the mind of a slave with the power of a king. Can you imagine anything more terrifying? Like Felix was all about Felix. Felix was about what can get Felix money, right? He was known for his corruption and his time, his tenure there in Jerusalem are one of the things politically that led to the Roman Jewish wars, how much he botched things up. He got in there and he, he had the Sicari and things like this, but how he dealt with them wasn't through justice. He would break down people's doors and things like that and slay all kinds of folks. If you were even kind of related to somebody who was possibly uh, part of the Sicari, he would kill you. Right? He, he was not a man of justice, and he took on all kinds of bribes and things like that. So Paul goes now to a trial before a very corrupt Roman court as well. But Jesus is better. Now, I want to say the first thing is that we sometimes look into our world and our culture, and doesn't it seem like we face a lot of corruption? That we're not treated fairly? That sometimes it's like, even as a Christian, you don't even get a fair hearing? I'll tell you that we don't have to freak out. Right? And, and we have opportunity in that, even today. But how we respond in this moment really matters, just like how Paul responded really matters. And so today I'm going to focus on three things from this word, from this text, to talk about how we, as Christians, ought to watch our words and why we need to do that. And so the very first one is that we need to this speak with honor. Right? Uh, Paul spoke with honor. Not at first, he caught himself. When he realized that he spoke bad about this corrupt high priest, what did he say? I did not realize it was a high priest, for it is written, don't speak evil about the rule of your people. Like, even if somebody is a corrupt person, we, possess, we respect the position, right? Isn't honor offering somebody respect? It's treating them with the respect due them? Even though Ananias was a horribly despicable human being, he was still the high priest. And... And so uh, the word of God commands us. It says, you honor those in authority. And it spoke about that. There were guys like Ananias in high priesthood. Uh, there, were, there were guys that were running the known world, guys like Nero, that were pretty darn awful. Corruption is not something new, 
right? In fact, when the gospel came, is when the world was probably the most corrupted it has ever been. It was the most anti-Christian world. It killed Jesus. You can't become more anti-Christ than that. The thing is, is that the Christians didn't go and, and thrive in an age in which corruption was absent. It began to thrive in an age when corruption was, was everywhere and, and justice was needed. The first thing they had to do, though, was we had to begin to honoring God before we honor people. Paul had choice words for the high priest, but he recognized that he misspoke and he said, I was wrong. The high priest deserved respect just because he's high priest. Now, I think as Christians, we go into this age as culture of disrespect. You're going to be called all kinds of things, right? I was called a Nazi. I never thought in my wildest dreams I would ever be called that. Maybe the word communist, maybe next. I have no idea. I don't know what else they can call me now. I, I, uh, but things are not true about you. You're going to be called all kinds of nasty things. And Jesus said, when the world says all kinds of nasty things about you that aren't true because of me, throw a party. He said, expect it. And I think how we respond in this culture that doesn't respect us is we cannot respond the way they do. Jesus didn't say, hate your enemies. He didn't say, curse those who curse you. Did he? He said, bless those that curse you. Pray for your enemies. That's how he said. He said, you know what? You're going to get struck and you're going to turn your other cheek. You're going to rise above it. And we have to, as a church, set the standard that is God's standard. It is his word. We respect other people. If we can respect those in authority, even if they are disrespectful people, even if they're, they're, they're corrupt, can we also then respect each other? For no other reason than that other people are made in the very image of God. Other people are human beings. Even if I disagree strongly with everything they believe and everything they stand for, are they at least a human being? Can I offer a level of dignity and respect to another person to say, you know what, you might disagree, but you have the right to your own thoughts. God didn't give me the right to your thoughts. Can I respect others? And if I can respect my peers, can I respect those that I have authority over? Those I have the privilege of serving in leadership? I think that we need to change the culture of dishonor by bringing honor back. What that means is that we don't go about bashing all kinds of other people. We don't say false things, false platitudes about them, but we don't go about just attacking. And besides that, attacking character rarely resolves conflict. You ever notice that? I mean, normally when you say, hey, you're a big stupid head, right? It doesn't respond, doesn't come back and saying, oh man, you really cut me to the quick there. You're right. I am a big stupid head. Let's, <laughs> that's not how it usually works. When you attack people at their character and call them names and do all that kind of stuff and disrespect them and dishonor people, all it causes is holy wars. We have to change that. The first thing we begin is we speak with honor. The second thing we need to do is speak with wisdom. Right? Paul was understood where he was at. Right? I think we have to understand is that, that Paul, and he was there, he, he said, knowing that some were Sadducees, some were Pharisees, he calls out the Sanhedrin, he says, I'm a Pharisee, my parents were Pharisees. He needed to give them context to what he was going to say. Now, if Paul had said this, you know, when he was back at, uh, you know, talking to the Greeks up on, on Mars Hill, right, do you think that they would have cared? They're like, I'm a Pharisee, my parents were Pharisees. They'd have been like, who cares? I don't even know what a Pharisee is. But in the Sanhedrin, that mattered. That bit of information was going to give them the context to understand why he would believe in the resurrection of the dead. 
I said, as Christians, we can't just be out and about just spewing things and just saying, this truth, right? We're going to tell you what God has to say, but if we don't understand our audience, we're oftentimes going to lose our hearing before we've even got one. We have to, first thing, uh, I think we start with this, is speak with wisdom, is understand your situation. Don't expect a fair hearing. It doesn't exist. Like, no, none of us live in a debate hall, right, where you have an arbiter in the middle and you get to bring your arguments back and forth and somebody listens and it's all fair. It doesn't exist. Every person is biased. Somebody tells you are not biased, they're lying to themselves. All of us have a bias, right? And when you are talking with somebody, you better understand where they're coming from so you know how to speak to them in a way they understand. Right? If we go into conversations, whether it be about religious things or family matters or work issues, and we think that it's a fair conversation, the person's coming in with a clean slate, we're fooling ourselves. And we will go and say stupid things. But if we understand that we're talking to real people who have real concerns and, and real biases and where they're at, then we can begin to address the people where they are at. In order to do that, we have to know our audience, which means oftentimes we have to listen way earlier than we start talking, right? That's uh, every year, every January, I read a book called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People because it helps me remind myself of how I structure my life and uh, do my time management because I need that. And uh, the guy who wrote that, not even a Christian, but he got this thing right. He said, uh, you want one of the habits of highly effective people is you seek to, be under, uh, seek to understand before you're understood. Isn't that a great thing? I mean, even a pagan can get that, right? Even a guy who doesn't know who, <laughs> the Lord's Savior can get this. The first thing as Christians, we have to understand other people, our society. There's a lot of pain out there. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of misunderstanding about who Christ is and who we are and what we believe. There's a lot of baggages out there. If you don't understand what they believe, how on earth can you respond intelligently to it? And we begin by listening. That's an important thing. You have to know who we're talking to. The same thing when we're talking to people who agree with us. Recognize that we have the pretensity for echo chambers, right, the body of Christ. We always talk to people who agree with us. What if we have a bad idea? All right, we'll just go with it. Know your audience so you can be wise in how we respond. I think the other thing, know your situation. What's going on? You know, if you're in the middle of a birthday party and things are, you know, it's probably not the time to confront somebody about, you know, their you know, their deep, dark sin that you have a problem with that you see in their life that's causing an issue. It's probably not the right place. I think we have to be aware of, sensitive to where people are going to be ready to listen. Right? Know the situation. Know what is appropriate, what would be heard, and what would not, would just make it so you're not heard at all. And I would say this too, as fun as they are, we should probably begin to avoid more inflammatory words and phrases. I mean, it really is fun to call somebody a whitewashed wall. That feels so good, doesn't it? You feel vindicated, you feel justified, you're like, oh, yeah, I got you. But what happens is then we just, people focus on the thing that we said and not the actual issue. And as Christians, isn't our, our, our only aim is to finish the race, complete the task the Lord Jesus has given us? And that task is to testify to the good news of God's grace? These little arguments oftentimes get in the way of God's grace. It's exactly what is needed to untie the argument. So I think we have to be very careful not saying what would feel good in the moment or to really just give them. But what is needed, what is kind, to speak with wisdom. Third thing I think we see what Paul does, and I think it's good for us to emulate, is to speak the truth. Right? The world doesn't need more flattery. It doesn't need more false statements. Truth is there. 
And the great thing about truth is that we don't have to make it up. In fact, we, don't, we can't make it up. Only God can create truth. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. Only God can create things to make them real, right? There was nothing, and God said, let there be everything, and then there was everything, right? Only God can make reality. It's our job to recognize reality as it is. And so we get to, like, what is truth? Truth is that which corresponds to reality. Reality exists whether or not you know it or not. It's just there. Our job is uh, truth is what says that's what reality is, and we agree with it. For example, like a truth is, is I am preaching to you right now. That's truth. Why? In reality, I'm preaching. If I said I'm milking a cow, you would say, well, that's clearly a lie. It's not true. It doesn't correspond to reality. There's no cows on stage, and I wouldn't even know where to begin, right? And so the thing is, is that we have to say that truth is out there. Truth is objective, and we have to believe that very deeply. We live in a culture that denies truth. And so doing oftentimes denies reality. We live in a culture that says, I create my own reality. And if we are that way, we, have, uh, we, ha- we can't really tell anybody truth because we don't even know it exists. The great thing about Christ is that we do know it exists. The Word of God shows us that who God is, that this world is real. You're not a figment of your own imagination. Isn't that great? And that we operate in this space and, and knowing what is real, actually, it can be known. And that's why God revealed his truth to us, when, uh, giving us senses. Aren't you glad that you have the sense of sight and smell and taste and all those kind of things that can tell you about the world around you? Doesn't he, aren't you glad that he's given us special revelations about deeper things like morals and stuff like that, like he's given us in the word of God? Aren't you glad that he gave us special revelation who God is by putting Jesus in the flesh? When God showed up so we know exactly who he is? I mean, God is a God who reveals truth so we would know it and jesus said you can know the truth and that truth then can set you free which is really where we want to be so understand that truth is objective it's also universal there's no such thing as my truth and your truth that is a crazy concept right for example if i put a lego on the floor right there and i turned off all the lights right and i had you walk across the floor right and you didn't know the lego was there you would still step on that lego and you would would cry because those hurt Right? And if I stepped on that Lego, it would hurt me too. I didn't create the Lego. You didn't create the Lego. You didn't have to recognize the Lego. You didn't even have to know it's a Lego. All you would know is I stood there and it hurt. Reality is there, and when we recognize it, it's benefit. If we don't recognize it, it hurts us. But all the truth is for all of us. So somebody says, your truth is that, like somebody said this to me, Aaron, your truth is that you know, like you're hot and I'm cold. And I would say, no, no, no. The truth is that you feel hot and I feel cold. The truth is that we're both 98.6 degrees. Truth is truth, and God has given us his truth. And the best thing that we can do is begin life according to what is really there. We step on a lot less Legos, for starters. But we recognize that when we speak truth, we help other people, and that's the point of speaking truth. The point of speaking truth isn't to beat them over the head with it. We're not here to blind people with the light. This doesn't help anybody. The reason that Jesus came and he gave us truth is that we could be set free, that we know the reality of our situation, that we're sinners, that we need salvation, that, that we can't earn our way, but God's given us grace. Isn't we glad that he showed us that? That we can say by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, that's fantastic, that God is with us and his power is through us, and then when we pray, we're not just talking to a wall and God is at work today. Aren't you glad about those truths? They set us free. They give us hope. Well, the world needs this kind of truths. The world needs the kind of truth that says, listen, we don't have to be each other's enemy. We were already enemies of God, but he said we didn't have to be. He died so we wouldn't have to be that way. And if I've received grace, I certainly can give you grace. I find that 
we need to be a people that are not afraid to say even what's unpopular. Paul said something in the Sanhedrin that was radically unpopular. I stand here because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. That wasn't a popular statement, but it's exactly what was needed to be said. He was testifying to the good news of God's grace. How do we apply these? This is actually probably the easiest week to do my application, these main points. The first thing that I think that we need to do is start this. Speak with honor. Practice it. It doesn't just happen. Speaking with honor is practice, right? We play like we practice. I start coaching football this Monday, right, next uh, tomorrow. And all the boys, like every single day, we're out there. It's like how you practice is how you play. The same thing as a Christian, right? If we are dishonoring people in in our bedrooms in the quiet times when nobody else can hear us, we're going to dishonor them when we have the chance to speak to them. But we have to practice honor. I'm going to practice honoring my wife and my son, Zach and Carissa and James in the office. Practice honoring the other people at Safeway and at the stores, right? Practice honoring by honoring my elected officials, those that I like and those that I don't. Practice by how do I speak about them? Do I tear people down just because I don't like them? Do I call them whitewashed walls because they deserve it? Or can I honor them as a human being for the position that they have? Practice honor. So speak speak uh, in such a way we honor authority. But we have to honor humanity. And in this, I think we start with this. We're honoring God. When we use honoring speech and we say things that are that which builds others up according to their needs, as the word tells us to do, not tearing each other down, I'm honoring God. The second thing I think we need to do is we speak with wisdom. We have to really give ourselves to this. Wisdom takes time and effort. Wisdom is a work ethic. Have you noticed that? That no one just kind of falls into wisdom. You could be a fool the whole, your whole life. You have to work. God says, ask me. I'll give you some wisdom. But God rarely gives you an epiphany. Right? God, I want wisdom. He'll put you through things in life so you gain that wisdom. You'll what you need. Wisdom is so important to understand correctly the world that we're in and how to respond to it. And I say this, as we speak with wisdom, it's not just saying what's the first thing on our mind. Well, oftentimes, we've got to stop ourselves because the first thing on my mind is not what needs to be said. The things that just come off the top of people's heads lead us to the society that we now live in. So take a moment and speak with understanding. And you can't speak with understanding until you understand. So listen, even to those who disagree with us, even those who say mean and horrible things, Hear where the word is, but all where the world is, but also hear where the word is. Understand what the truth has to say about it. Pray a lot. I think a lot of this is seeking understanding. Is spending a lot of time trying to, to say, God, here's the craziness of my life, and here's the truth of your word, and I need you to teach me how these tie together. Before we have anything to speak into this world, make sure it's valuable. So speak with that understanding, that wisdom. And as we do, though, speak with humility. You're not Jesus. And we're all glad about that. And you're glad that I'm not Jesus, right? Like the thing is, is that we have to speak with this humility saying, the truth is best I understand it. The truth is, is, is in the Word. I'm not the expert. The Word of God is the expert, right? That, that my faith is being informed by what I know that God has revealed. So it's not me. It's not my great ideas. Aaron doesn't save anybody, but Jesus saves anybody. So let's start speaking with some humility. Recognize then if somebody ignores your wisdom they're not ignoring you they're ignoring god and so you pray for them so we begin and also too you got to speak with meekness meekness is power under control that's what it is jesus said the meek are going to inherit the earth right there's a lot of power when it's controlled we all have the power to, to smack back at somebody right 
They say something and you can say, oh, you whitewashed wall or worse. And I'm particularly good at this, right? If somebody says something I don't like, I can cut them like, I could just <laughs> gut somebody, right? That's a, a, not a spiritual gift. It's a spiritual sickness, right? And it's a lot of fun, right? To be honest, but the thing is, it's not helpful. And so I have that power to gut someone and I have to choose not to wield it. Right? When I get in an argument or somebody attacks me and calls me a Nazi, I can't call back to them and say, oh, you communist. Right? What good does that do? When somebody impugns your character, you know it's not true, do you go and just attack them and assault them? We have to be under control. We have to control ourselves. We have to first say, my, consider my life worth nothing to me. So what if that person thinks I'm a horrible person? Do they believe that Jesus is good? Can they see his grace? Because the reality is I am a pretty lousy person. Right? I, I sin. Right? I don't do things perfectly. I get mad at people in front of me in a safe way. Right? I, sometimes in the quiet of my own bedroom, you know, I'll just how I would have that argument with them when there's no one else but me and God there. I could just verbally beat up on them in my mind. I could do some pretty mean, nasty things. And I can be selfish too. I mean, I'm really not that great of a person, but God is making me a great person. And God saved even a sinner like me. Now, I recognize that. I recognize that I've got his grace. He's given it to me. And he's given me the great power and the authority. I can pray and I can, I can care for other people because he's, he's cared for me. I can love because I've received love. And so I must use my power not to wound, to help. So speak with wisdom. Your words matter. They really do. So... The last part of this is then how to kind of what are we saying? I think we've got to say the truth, not what people want to hear. Our culture does not need to hear more of the echo chamber. It's falling off the cliff. Our culture has denied God, has denied reality, is making up their own forms of reality, and they're stepping all over everything and they're falling apart. This is not the time for the church to be bullied into silence. We need to be able to speak, but if we're going to speak, let it be truth. Let it be what, what corresponds to what really is, that there really is a God and we really are made in His image and that, that we, we really did sin and that there really is a Savior and He really has come and that we really can be saved by His grace through faith in Jesus and the Holy Spirit is really amongst us and the church is really the body and the body of Christ and that we really have love for one another and that we really are supposed to care for this community. Can we speak truth? And that His ways are so much superior than our ways. And even though... God's morals are so different than ours. His morals actually lead to life instead of destruction and love instead of hatred. Can we speak truth? Because our world needs it now more than ever. So we have to focus on what is true more than our opinion, more than our emotions, more than our pain. We give our pain to Jesus. My life, I consider it nothing to me, but I have a name. I have a name. And I'm going to complete that task that God gave me. I'm going to finish that race. And that race isn't to beat people down. It is to share the good news of God's grace. That's what we'll do. That's what we'll do every day, every conversation. There's an opportunity. This is what we're about. And in this, then we have to be motivated with the very thing that motivated Christ. Love. We cannot be out in this world beating people up with the truth so that they feel more and more just powerless to the dark. If we're going to speak truth, speak it in love. Speak it because you know it's going to help set them free. Speak it in a way that helps set them free that they can receive the good news of God's grace in their life as well. So today, we covered a lot. Words matter, don't they? Man, they matter a lot. That's why we need to watch them.
Let me wrap this up. Speak with honor. Do it. Practice it. Right? Speak with wisdom. Begin to, to gain that wisdom and be able to speak with it. Speak truth. Know truth. Give yourself to understanding what is truth so that you have truth to offer. How do you practice this? How do you apply this today? Because as followers of Jesus, we have to watch our words. I've got some next steps for you, some things, practical things that you can do this week to begin to apply this into your life. So if you have your connection card, I invite you to take that out. And on the back side, there's going to be some options. Just next steps. That's all it is. Next steps, following Jesus. First thing you might want to do is, is memorize Acts 20, 24. I've already shared with you the power of God's word to transform us. I encourage you to start memorizing, meditate on that, apply it to your life. It takes a while, but God's word does its work. And maybe that's where you begin. So you have the opportunity and the right heart to be able to speak truth and wisdom and love. How about this? How about you uh, read Acts 23? You want to see how Christians respond to a corrupt culture and corrupt leadership and corrupt situations? There you go. Acts 23. It's a perfect example. I encourage you to to read it. How about this? Maybe for you this week, you say, I'm going to pray for my nation. This is what the scriptures tell us to do. It's one of the ways we honor our country. Right? God put us here. Pray for our nation. We are divided. There is too much hatred, so much that people are shooting people over stupid things. We, as the Christians, have the power of God amongst us. We get to be the healing balm, the salt and the light. Pray for our country. Pray for the wounds for your neighbors and for your friends and, and for your family members. Right? Pray for, for us to return back to God. Can you pray for our president and for his cabinet and for his, uh, the, the Senate and the con and the House? Can you pray for the, those that are in judges' positions of, in the judiciary? Can you pray for those that are in positions of authority in, in social media and in Hollywood and all these other spaces? Can we pray for them? Because a lot of them really need the light and the love and the truth of God. Can we pray for them? And can we begin praying for a healing in our country? Because I'll tell you this, Republicans and Democrats don't have the solution to the hatred amongst us, but God does. So maybe that's where you begin. You say, I'm going to pray. I'm going to start praying. How about the last thing is you also, instead of just praying, then you also say, I'm going to watch my words. I'm going to realize the power that God has given me with how I speak. And from this day, I'm going to be more and more conscious and giving it over to God and like Paul, admitting it when I'm wrong and <laughs> correcting course. But I'm going to start speaking with honor. I'm going to start doing that. I'm going to start speaking with more wisdom. I'm going to give myself to really speaking truth. Can you commit to doing that, starting that this week? Let me know. Make your connection. You have a commitment. If there's something else the Holy Spirit's telling you to do, please let me know. As your pastor, I do support you, and I pray for you as you do these things. If you have a prayer request, please write that down. I will be praying for you this week. And I know that our God, He answers prayers in amazing ways. In just a second, we're going to take our offering. As we take our offering, I invite you, please take these connection cards, put them in the offering basket as they're passed, along with your tithes and your gifts. And as the worship band comes out, because right, if I pray for you and for our commitments that we made, that would be great. Okay, let's do that. Heavenly Father, we, uh, <laughs> we are yours because uh, you loved us first. While we were still your enemies, while we were still doing what was wrong, instead of cursing us, you brought the greatest blessing in the history of, of all history. You came amongst us, and you took our curses. You, you took all the wrong and the injustices and everything that we could throw at you, along with all of our own sin, and you died so they would die with you. You paid the price, and we're grateful for it. Lord, I pray for 
for this congregation, Father, that you would bless us with the ability to to be able to watch our words well, that we could be good representatives of, of you and your kingdom in this community and in this age and in this time. Father, we've made commitments today. I pray that for each one of us that has chosen to, to do something, that you'd help us to express our faith through that very action, that we would see you do work in amongst us. But Father, I pray that uh, as we watch our words and as we as we honor those that are uh, around us and as we uh, speak truth, God, that you, would, that you would be able to reveal your healing truth to this community and in this country in a way that brings about a real revival, your life, your healing. Father, I also pray for the commitments and the, and the, the, the tithes that we've given, the, uh, the uh, money that we bring back to you because you always provide. Lord, help us to worship you in this, to put you at the center of our life, even with our things. We ask that you would bless those gifts, those tithes. Lord, that you would build your kingdom with it, that you would receive glory. And Father, in all of this, as we go out this week, would you bless us with the ability to grow your kingdom in such a way that brings you glory. We ask that all in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.